3: Hello, you're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove and I edit the magazine and this is the first of our March 2012 editions. Now don't forget BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Our website is historyextra.com, and there is all manner of interesting historical information there. And we're on Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra, or facebook.com slash historyextra. Interestingly, we're also now available on Kindle, so go to historyextra.com forward slash Kindle, or just search for us on Amazon if you have that device and want to read the magazine on it. Coming up this week...
2: Queen Elizabeth I's effigy does have drawers on.
3: That was Ian Mortimer on Elizabethan England.
0: At the time, of course, he is the ogre. He's the guy that, that everyone's afraid of.
3: And that was Julian Farrance on Britain's Foes. Right, our first interview this week is with Ian Mortimer, who has written a fine feature in our March issue, exploring what the sensory experience would have been like in Elizabethan England. I caught up with him to find out what sorts of smells, sounds and sights would have greeted the average 16th century Englishman and woman. So, uh, Ian, you've been uh, you've been working on your new book. Uh, the ne- the latest in your Time Traveller's Guide series, this is the Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England. Indeed, um, yeah. And the idea, as I understand it, is to to help the reader to to see through Elizabethan eyes and sort of smell through their nostrils. So so talk me through. What's what what are you trying to do here?
2: Well, yes. the one, one hand, you're trying to intervie- uh, introduce people to a real experience, or as near to a real experience of the past as you possibly can, given that we are still talking about the past and it's unreachable. You want to make people um, think about what it is to sen- uh, experience the sensations of a different time. Uh, so the idea is to take them to the past in the sense of a travel book, as if they really could go there. If you could go to Elizabethan England, where you're going to stay, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, uh, what laws you're going to be uh, uh, asked to obey, which sort of diseases you're going to be fearful of, what sort of remedies are going to be equally uh, uh, fearsome, um, so it's that sense of immediacy, and that's one aspect of what you're doing and what I'm doing in the Time Travelers' Guides. But there is another aspect as well, which is questioning our entire approach to the past. Because what we're doing in a travel book is experiencing the past, or writing about the past, in the present tense. With its immediacy, which then questions the way we've objectified the past. In, in where we've written about history previously. So it's, it's trying to operate on two levels, the serious end of things and a much more subtle end of things, questioning our whole approach to the past and the way object, we objectify it, or objectify it. And then at the same time, having this immediate experience, which people find enjoyable. Can
3: you help me out there? What, what do you mean by objectifying the past?
2: Well, if you think about the, the the way we've looked at the past, we've always seen it as something different over there in the past, dead and buried, you know, dusty archives and all that. But it really wasn't like that at the time. If you want to look at Elizabethan England really close up, you don't see it as dusty and old, you see it as alive and bright and shiny. So therefore, getting away from that sense of the the past being over and done with and dead and buried and all dusty and uh, uh, and half rotten uh, and ruined in many cases, and looking at it as being fresh and new as it was at the time. It's a much closer uh, and more intimate look at the past. But you're
3: still presumably using, you know, you're still in those same dusty archives. Or, well, a lot of that the information will be online now, of course. But, but you're still using those same sources, aren't they? So, so how far can you take this? How how, how different can you be from a from a standard historical approach?
2: Um, well, you can be very, very different because you're asking very uh, uh, different questions. Um, the way that a standard historian operates is to take a body of evidence and with the background of what he knows about uh, the the life and times, etc., is to interpret that body of evidence. I come from the other end. I come from the, the point of view of what questions could we possibly ask about the past? What do you clean your teeth with? And then I go and look for the evidence that gives me the best way of answering that question. So it only works if you've got a very good knowledge of the sources available. Um, but fortunately I've uh, been doing this for a number of years now. I have a PhD in the, uh, the, the, the social history of the early modern period. I worked for the Royal Commission on the Stockham Manuscripts, which my role there was very much advising people how to do research. So I've got a, a good head start when it comes to answering these questions.
3: And were, were there any questions when you were trying to do this that you thought, oh, this is a question I would really like to know the answer to, but you were simply unable to come up with anything you know, concrete from the sources that are available?
2: Uh, What I would like to know is the... the Uh, which I haven't yet managed to find, I'm sure it's there somewhere, is the formal etiquette for presenting yourself to the Queen. And I know about how people did it in the Middle Ages and the formal ways of uh, kneeling uh, as people approached, for example, Edward III or Henry V, but I haven't yet come across anybody uh, uh, stipulating uh, exactly how you should behave when you are presented to the Queen. I'm sure there are sources out there, but in the limited time I've had to research this, that was one question I really wanted to know, which I wasn't able to answer. But, more generally, the ones, the questions that really excite me, which I really want to know about, and which are really difficult to answer, are the more intimate questions, uh, the the, the, the um, matters of personal hygiene, the sort of things you don't talk about today. Um, and probably the top of the pile of all of those is, uh, did women wear underwear? Because this is a fascinating subject. But because women always wear long skirts, they have to go right down to the ankle, then no one ever sees, no one ever portrays any underwear. From continental sources, you know that women of ill repute used uh, underwear as a, a sort of sexual uh, heightening thing. But did they really have underwear on? Under this? We're normally told no, but there are uh, continental examples and Queen Elizabeth I's effigy does have drawers on. So you have to ask, well, maybe they did. Maybe Queen Elizabeth did wear underwear
3: fascinating so are there any that you haven't been able to find any definitive sources that have been able to enlighten you on that matter though
2: no but by complete coincidence uh, two days ago i was emailed by a, an archaeologist in austria who has come across a fantastic pair of uh, 15th century ladies drawers in a, a ruined co- well, a castle which is being restored there um so we have another pair to add to the very small collection of 16th century drawers for ladies that do survive um uh, I've come across accounts of Elizabeth's that describe pairs of linen hosen but they're normally for stockings. I don't really think that she sort of uh, wore them, um, especially if we take on board the idea that they were a, a, a form of uh, heightening sexual excitement.
3: Okay, well, while we're on this topic, we don't want to be sexist. What, what underwear did men wear?
2: All ah, right. Well, men wore uh, standard braids, uh at the beginning, which are quite loose uh, underpants. At the uh, the beginning of the period, they get tighter and shorter uh, um, as, as time goes on. Um, you, uh, uh, I think you had quite a variety. I mean, the examples that survive are. are Quite loose by our standards, um, but uh, men had so many uh, layers over the top. I mean, you would have your trunk hose over the top if you're a gentleman, and your, the, the hose on your legs, the, the sort of stockings on your legs as well. Um, if you're at the top end of society, you could have quite a lot of underwear. At the bottom end of society, you probably would uh, have gone without.
3: Okay, right. So if I if I were a time traveller and I was able to uh, transport myself back to uh, the 16th century. Um, a, a, a bit of a vague question, but say I, I land myself in uh, in London in in the fifteen seventies or something like that. Well, what sort of things do I see? What are what are the sort of sights that are going to come into my eyes?
2: London in the 1570s, uh, 1570s is uh, a magnet for people coming in from the, the provinces. Um, you have to understand that it, at the beginning of the reign, 1550s, I mean, the population of London is about 50,000, 60,000, possibly 70,000. By the end of the reign, it's 200,000. So the, the thing you would have most noticed is the traffic, the number of people coming into the town, the number of houses are being divided up and used as tenements, um, a lot of squalor, a lot of uh, really compressed uh, uh, housing, uh, subs- standard housing. At the same time, a lot of really magnificent housing. People are just beginning to bring in large amounts of glass. Elizabeth's reign is the the reign where you see glass coming into domestic housing in in, in towns uh, on on quite a large scale. Um, You'd also see more people putting in chimneys and moving from hall houses, which are single-storey buildings, into two, three, four, five, six-storey buildings in London. And the other thing you'd have noticed, really, is the number of uh, wheeled vehicles on the roads. Coaches have come in, and in London you have a lot of people coming back after Mary's reign, who bring in the continental style of travelling in a coach, which has really never been the way in England. But in London, you'd have seen a lot of people trying to emulate their uh, cousins, as it were, in Antwerp, where there are 500 coaches on the on the city streets. Um, and Plenty of people in London comment on uh, the world runs on wheels, of the poets, or the water poet, uh, complains about it, and a number of other people uh, complain about the amount of traffic on the roads, especially with all these people coming in. Traffic jams? Would I? Would I encounter? Oh yes, them? you know, had traffic jams, traffic accidents. People got killed with coaches uh, driving too fast, or or driving too fast in between one of the the, the gates of the town and actually squashing you against the side of uh, the gates. So you'd have had um, a lot of of the things that we'd actually associate with traffic problems now. And obviously the pollution was more from the horses leaving dung in the streets rather than uh, 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 carbon monoxide. But you had very similar sort of reactions. And and in fact, I think it's 1601, 1602, somewhere around there, there is a petition to Parliament to try and stop the coaches on the roads. It's not successful.
3: Okay, And what would I hear? Would would the audio spectrum be markedly different to
2: to what I'd expect today? Uh, Hugely so. People aren't uh, experienced in very loud noises, as we are quite a lot of the time, especially if you live in a city and you don't have sirens, you don't have motor vehicles, you don't have airplanes going overhead, you don't have pneumatic drills. So their oral spectrum is actually much, much sort of lower down the decibel range. The only loud noises you've heard are the, the, the noises of instruments that are meant to be loud, such as trumpets and shawms and uh, instruments like that, which are loud music. Obviously, there's thunder on occasion, but everybody understands that's uh, not within mankind's sort of sound creation orbit. Um, so, therefore, the, the, the way you listen is actually much more intensely. And when you listen... For uh, well, generally, you will hear or you will notice the noises that much more. So you will hear the chiming of a bell, and you will therefore refer to the time as the hour of the bell and things like that. So yes, the the, the listening spectrum is very different from ours.
3: And and smell. I mean, we always we expect Elizabethan England to be a, a sort of a stinking place, don't I mean, we? That's what uh, that's what what all the evidence tells us. But is that true? Was it a particularly pungent place to be to be in?
2: Well, you have to start off thinking, why does that evidence exist? Normally, that evidence exists that something is atrocious, something really stinks to high heaven, because it's abnormal, because somebody's been taken to court for it. Most of the records we have come from people breaking the law, breaking the law of nuisance, as it were. So, in in the past, we've had this idea of it being a stinking place, but if you look around a city now, you'll find quite a lot of smells. Um, So, really, we've got to get away from this and actually start thinking about how much did they notice these smells? Now then, you see, there's a huge spectrum, a, a massive spectrum of dif- this, uh, difference. At the top end of society, people were clean, people were perfumed, people changed their clothing more often than we do, and they, uh, uh, they wash their hands more often than we do on the whole. Certainly, more often than my children do. So there is a, 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 a spectrum from the very clean, something which really is uh, uh, we would consider decent at the top end of society, right down to those who simply can't afford the water to wash the firewood, to heat the water, to have a bath. They don't have baths, especially because the water isn't clean and you could actually catch an illness from the water. So at the top end of society, pretty much as clean as us okay they're not bathing as regularly but they're washing themselves with linen and cleaning their body very regularly uh and the bottom end of society well you don't want to go there you'll have lice in your hair you'll have lice on your body you'll stink to high heaven you won't have washed um and if you really really want the dregs of how dirty you could get imagine the people on uh, sir francis drake's circumnavigation of the globe in the 1577 to 1580, uh, where they don't
3: really wash the entire three years. Okay, so just thinking about sensations and sights If if I was able to to go back there, is there anything that would particularly surprise me? You know, if when I was if I if I was able to get back to the 16th century, I was wandering around. Is there anything that, that would, as a as a modern visitor going back there, that you think, gosh, that is completely alien and different to what I might expect?
2: Well, the, the the thing that would just override you, apart from the, the individual smells you'd notice in places, the thing that will be overwhelming and the impression that will last will be the inequality of society. We have a society which is based on uh, the idea of peace, treating each other as equals, uh, uh, and this simply does not apply in uh, Elizabethan England. There is a whole hierarchy of not just smells, not just what you wear, the way you behave, uh, how you treat people, the sort of punishments you deal out to people depends on their social status I and mean, the social status divides everybody and it if two brothers can be unequal because one's Zedon will inherit and the other one isn't then you can see how the, 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 those prejudices get extended to women and uh, and other people of uh, other families and you will be astonished at how unequal society is and how keen people are to preserve those inequalities and uh, 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 Aspects of cruelty that, uh, to us, are quite horrific. And I might add that that cruelty extends all the way to other things as well, especially to animals. Uh, people will be astonished at how cruel our pre-industrial forebears are to uh, their animals. Mm, OK. So does that, there's, there's that
3: well-worn phrase in that the past is a, is a foreign country. If If I was able to go back to this particular moment in the past, would it be like visiting a foreign country like going on a really exotic holiday to somewhere where i had never been before or would it be just you know
2: by an order of magnitude much more different than that well if you could go i think the foreign office would probably put a, a warning on anybody visiting the 16th century because it is dangerous uh, it's not just dangerous. You've got the plague. You've got uh, uh, know, we, we think about the plague because it's different from us, uh, and it, uh, it regularly sort of will wipe out five percent of the population. Still, not quite on the scale of the medieval plague, but uh, uh, is still really dangerous. But that's just one of many, many diseases that are going to get you. I mean, influenza, uh, it, there's a terrible outbreak of influenza at the beginning of the reign, which um, I mean, it kills about 180,000 people, as far as I can work out. And we always think about the, the influenza outbreak after the First World War. Well, the, in proportion, the influenza outbreak of Elizabeth's reign kills more people than the war and the influenza outbreak of 1918, 1919. So um, you, you've got horrific diseases, you've got... Endemic violence in society, very few people able to protect you, uh, so you would really have a a, a Foreign Office warning against going there. Okay.
3: Um, So so I I ought to be a bit worried then if I was was to be, you know, just strolling along a street in, in Elizabethan, England.
2: Yes, yeah, you'd be worried. I, I think it's a very exciting place to be. I mean, there's tremendous discoveries being made, but also people are very insecure in the way they understand how the world operates and understand divine judgment. Um, they are sort of experimenting, really. And one of the things that really I, I enjoyed about this whole process of uh, discovering Lesbethan England more intimately was realizing how the playwrights with whom we are still familiar obviously, Marlowe Shakespeare, uh, Ben Jonson, how they're very much sort of surfing this cultural wave, bringing together all the discoveries and all the doubts and all the passions and synthesizing this into sort of a great uh, examination of this amazing period of discovery on the London stage. And I think one of the reasons that their plays have lasted so well, and are still enjoyed today, is because they are able to tap into this sense of excitement as well as the fear and doubt and everything that's going on, and understand how a human being can navigate through all this excitement and doubt etc. Okay.
3: So if, if you had the chance where would you most like to go uh, and when and why in, in the well in the Elizabethan period but actually you you've you've done this uh, uh, for other times as well so we can we can either choose Elizabethan or you can go for another period but
2: where would you like to go and and see well, as long as I've got a guarantee of good health, I mean, that, that, that's the, the one thing that would put anybody off uh, investigating the past. And I do think we are living in an enormously privileged time now after this long period of peace, period of prosperity. We're not suffering from all these diseases in the past, and we're not having to face the privations of the future when our uh, resources start to run dry. So I think we're in a very, very privileged period, possibly the most privileged period there will ever be for the human race in the Western world right now. But if I had to go into the past, I would like to see those pivotal moments of uh, cultural change uh, i would like to see though the the way that edward iii developed the the, the form of uh, projectile warfare because that changed the world i mean the idea that you have a relatively small number of poor people well equipped with long bows can massacre the uh, aristocracy of another country and therefore you have a revolution in the classes, a revolution in the way you run uh, a country, because you can build a nation in this way. At the same time, I'd love to see uh, the the reactions to Shakespeare's plays when they were there on the stage and these people from London had their mouthpiece to describe the world they were uh, experiencing in, in its changing form. I would love to have seen that engagement between the, 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 the group of players on the stage and, and, and the audience, uh, because I cannot help but think there, there are aspects of that that people would take away and uh, uh, really enjoy. So, yes, London in the, 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 the late 1590s uh, uh, or um, anywhere that Edward III was in the 1330s.
1: And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Ian Mortimer.
3: You can read his feature on this subject in the March issue of BBC History magazine. And Ian's book, The Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England, is published now by The Bodley Head. Now we have a short advert.
1: Want to enjoy great historic
3: days out? Membership to historic Royal Palaces allows free and unlimited entry to the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, the Banqueting House, Kensington Palace and Kew Palace. With a transformed Kensington Palace reopening in March, the Diamond Jubilee and Olympic celebrations, 2012 promises to be the year to be a member. Prices start from just £43 a year, giving you unlimited entry to all five palaces And so much more. Visit hrp.org.uk or call 0844 482 and become a member of our historic royal family. The National Army Museum in London has just launched a campaign to uncover Britain's greatest enemy, Commander. In the light of the cover feature on this month's issue of the magazine about how the British Army helped make Britain a global power... I thought this was an interesting point of discussion. The museum's spokesperson, Julian Farrant, explained what they are doing. We're here in the National Army Museum in Chelsea. We're talking about your your latest attempt to uh, ignite debate about military matters. And what you're doing is you're looking for Britain's greatest foe. So tell me about it.
0: Well, it's it's an odd place to start by thinking we're going to go straight for an an event called Britain's Greatest Enemy Commanders, but it actually comes from from an event that we ran last year. So this is the second in a series, Um, and last year's event was Britain's Greatest. Generals. Uh, and we had a great online deba- debate, quite a lot of uh, interest, in fact some quite frenzied online commentary, which led through to uh, an event where uh, the, the top five that were voted through uh, were, were uh, 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 advocated by various military speakers and we had a final vote and we got a, a, a final vote through to say this chap is the top. In fact, it ended up being a split vote between the Duke of Wellington and General Slim, so we had two Britain's top generals. It was a great success, we enjoyed it, we had a lot of fun with it, and we thought we'd like to do uh, the same thing again. Uh, And so this time we've gone for Britain's greatest enemy commanders. And in the same way as we have with the generals, what we wanted to do was bring up some of the more obscure people uh, and bring them into the top 20 so that they could be brought back to public interest. Last year we had odd generals like people like Sir Colin Campbell, who is a, an obscure Victorian commander who we think is great, but nobody's ever heard of anymore. So bringing those kind of guys back in again. And obviously the people like Wellington and Slim and Montgomery carried through onto the top five, but it still gave us an opportunity to look at these more obscure guys. And that's similar to what we're doing now with our enemy command. And we've set ourselves certain criteria. Obviously, our commanders have to be uh, land commanders. They have to be within the period that the museum looks at. So, we're looking at really 17th century onward. Um, We specifically wanted to look at people who'd been battlefield commanders rather than political leaders. So, that's why we're doing it. That's the background of why we wanted to do this. We wanted to run an online debate that would lead through to an event.
3: Okay. So, what you've done is you've come up with a list of 20 candidates. Um, and presumably you've done that internally with the, with the uh, amassed knowledge of the National Army Museum's curators?
0: Exactly so. We, um, we put it out to all the members of staff to take part. There was a sort of core group of about five of us who ended up sifting through the, the suggestions. And we've then selected the 20 that we think are the most useful. Now. Uh, again we have to be a little bit circumspect in that we have to it's it's very useful from our point of view if we have collection material that relates to these guys because obviously one of the things that this does is it it produces interest in the national army museum as well so if we've got collection material and we can focus on that that's very useful but um but obviously there are certain names that are definitely going to get through onto that list people like for instance. Napoleon or Rommel or the Rani of Jancy or what have you. So there we are those are the those are the sorts of people that we've got through onto our final 20.
3: Okay. Well let's let's have a, a look at your list and uh, consider some of the people who you've nominated. Um, the first one that uh, strikes me is what is one of the more obvious ones a chap called Napoleon. So <laughs> so why was why is he in in the
0: list? It would be quite hard to have a list of Britain's greatest enemy commanders and not include the emperor Napoleon because he is he fits all of our criteria. He is certainly a commander who commanded troops against Britain um, quite early in his career at uh, Toulon and, of course, right at the end of his career at Waterloo. But um, larger than that, almost, he's he's he, well, he's given his name to an entire period, hasn't he? The Napoleonic period uh, is, a, is a large section of the museum's collection, covers the Napoleonic period. Uh, and at the time, of course, he is the ogre. He's the guy that, that everyone's afraid of. We're afraid that he's going to actually invade... Britain, his um, his imperial forces will come across the Channel, and we will be fighting in Kent. So he is seriously a contender for the the greatest enemy commander, I think. Um, and he does have a lot of qualities that speak well for any, for a, any commander on a battlefield. He's got a great grasp of ground. He's, uh, he's got a great grasp of logistics. He's called the little corporal and not for nothing. I mean, he's got a great idea about man management. His soldiers absolutely worshipped him. Um, But he's also um, adaptable, um, he's flexible, uh, and he's just a pretty... He's a fabulous all-round commander. He is the complete package.
3: Right, who else have we got in the list? Uh, Well, the Zulu uh, chap you mentioned, the chap that that we've never heard of.
0: Yeah, well, his name is Ningxueo, Ningxueo, uh, and he is uh, a prince of the Zulus who's selected by the king to command the force that goes and attacks the invading British centre column at uh, the mountain of Izanlana, uh, and... That, that battle ends up being one of the most crushing defeats that Britain suffers throughout the entire Victorian period. And the Victorian period is pretty well stuffed with pretty pretty horrible defeats for Britain. I mean, if you look at uh, actions like the Charge of the Light Brigade or uh, Chilean Wallah or the retreat from Kabul in in 1842, there's plenty of choice for the biggest cock-up, uh, but Isamwana is a total disaster. And it's not down to huge mistakes made by the British commander in, of the day. He's not a particularly experienced guy, but he is doing generally what would be expected of a British commander in the field in that, that, at that time and in that place. But his forces are utterly outmatched and overwhelmed. And bearing in mind that his guys are modern European infantry armed with the most uh, modern breech-loading rifles up against, essentially, blokes carrying spears and clubs, and they get completely overwhelmed...
3: I mean, that's, that's 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 an interesting point, isn't it? Because uh, we're not we're not actually matching like we like here. Napoleon, as we just discussed, had a large, you know, very large armies behind yes. him, well trained, you know, professional armies. Whereas some of the other candidates here were in no way that that well equipped. No. So so how can you how can you assess the, these people that well, like like?
0: If we are going. Absolutely, like for like, it would be a very short competition because we couldn't fit them all together in the same categories, of course, and otherwise it becomes massively over, over, over uh, uh, unwieldy, uh, overburdened with all of these different categories. So we've gone for something quite simple, um, and I think it comes down to uh, the individuals themselves. I suspect if Ningjueo had been trained with uh, soldiers who had muskets and artillery and cavalry and worked in that same form. He would have been equally good because a lot of the, the uh, qualities that a great commander needs uh, will transcend the, the, the techniques uh, and, the, uh, and the technology of the day. I mean, the, the, uh, the, an eye for ground is something that, that you can have as a medieval commander or as somebody fighting in Afghanistan today. Um, and it doesn't matter about the culture that you come from. From that, I'm sure that the uh, I know that the uh, the uh, American Indian commanders at the, at the Battle of the Little Big Horn had a particularly good eye of, of the ground. So it's not something that's necessarily cultural. So I think that that the individual is what we're looking at here, the, uh, not so much the the technology that they have. But as you point out, uh, Ninkwayo is a is a good example of a man who overcomes modern technology because his his warriors uh, do beat the british now you can say well he outnumbers them he certainly does but he's coming up against modern trained art, uh, artillery and uh, rifle fire and still manages to over overwhelm the british positions mm.
3: um, and you're saying that he wasn't it wasn't the case that the the, the british side the, the british commander was notably a bad egg
0: no, and um, Izanwana is a particularly good example of uh, a lot of imperial excuses because throughout history, from the point that the battle was lost, there have been all kinds of excuses offered up as to why, and uh, usually it comes down to failures in technology. We ran out of ammunition being the, the most obvious one. The ammunition boxes were all screwed shut and they couldn't get enough ammunition out to the soldiers. Um, but recent archaeological digs on the site, well, within the last 10 years, have tended to disprove that. And I think actually what, what beats the British one uh, is not the fact that they're Soldiers are running out of ammunition, but that they are literally outmaneuvered. Um, that the Zulu, uh, the incoming Zulu horn, as anyone who, who knows about Zulus knows, that they attack in a particularly uh, particular formation the horns of the buffalo. So, the center part of their army is the chest, and the outreaching, sweeping uh, wings of the army are called the horns. And one of the horns manages to get in behind the British position, so the chest is pinning them to w- into place while the horn gets in behind them. And when those two uh, elements come together, they trap the British in between them and, are, uh, and overwhelm them. And you've also got um, training playing a part there. British soldiers are, at the time are extremely capable um, at firing their muskets or their rifles in this particular instance. They had a lot of training to do that. But in the 1870s bayonet fighting was viewed to be archaic and unnecessary so it's not given a great deal of training. Whereas a Zulu warrior spends months and years training to fight in close quarters with spears and clubs and shields. So when they actually get to hand-to-hand combat they annihilate the Brits.
3: Um, and you got Rommel in here again. No, yes. no great surprise. Um, well, I mean, was, what, what, does Rommel live up to his reputation? Do you think
0: Rommel is a capable commander? He's he's um, again, he's a very adaptable man, and I think that. Part of his problem is that he is he's essentially logistically abandoned by his chain of command. Um, one of the reasons that the Africa Corps eventually go down, not not to denigrate Montgomery's great uh, efforts and the fact that um, a lot of Montgomery's victories come through breaking of the German code. Who cares? Whatever the reason we win them, that's brilliant. But one of the reasons that Rommel loses them is that he's finding it more and more difficult to supply his armies because so much of that supply chain is being taken away from him and is being used in other theatres because... Uh, as with, even in Britain, um, North Africa is used as a bit of a sideshow, uh, certainly as far as the German high command is concerned, and they don't really want to commit too much in the way of resources to it, so his his army is forced to wither on the vine. He, he needs petrol, he needs armour, he needs all sorts of things. And the fact that he manages to keep going and keep being a threat for such a long time, I think, is a testament to his his ability to command.
3: Well, that brings up an interesting point, isn't it? Because, as you say, the, 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 these generals, they're famous figures, they're, they're people who are you know, good at commanding, good at strategy, good with the bat on but they would have been of naught, if they didn't have a good logistical setup behind them and were able to, you know, get the troops to the to the battlefield and and, and feed them.
0: So I think that's that, that's a very valid point. And one of the one of the qualities that we say is, uh, is that we're looking at it for good commanders is not not just the tactical and strategic flair, but also man management and logistical supply and all of that sort of thing. I mean, last year um, Marlborough, one of the the chap who was uh, stressing Marlborough as a great commander, was looking a lot at that kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's it's not. It's not. New, it's not actually a, a surprise to find that that the same sort of nicknames keep coming forward. I mean, um, Marlborough's nickname was Corporal John. Well, Napoleon's nickname amongst his troops was the Little Corporal. So I think you're looking at the same sort of thing, aren't you? That that uh, of course, if, if an army runs out of bullets, if it runs out of biscuits, if it runs out of toilet paper, it's no longer going to be able to function. Um, and a commander needs to keep that in mind as as much as anything else.
3: So that's very much a consideration here: the, their ability not just to command on the battlefield, but to command for outer camp.
0: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It's it's the complete package, um, and we're we're casting our net pretty wide here. Uh, and, but we are putting out the information for people to look at and to make informed decisions as well. Mm. So that if you look at the uh, if you look at the the information on each commander on the on the website, you'll find that mm. elements like that will come to the fore. Um, so yes, it's not just all about the number of victories that these guys have have actually scored. One of the problems that we found when doing this um, is actually finding enough enemy commanders who have given the Brits a a run for their money to make up the the top 20. Uh, Last year, with generals, we had an embarrassment of riches. We've got lots and lots of British generals that we can claim are in the top 20 and that will go forward to the top five. But... Actually, Britain has been pretty successful at the art of war over the the co- uh, over the over uh, last few hundred years. So finding people who have given them a serious run for their money has been quite tricky. I think that the, the list that we've got is a, is a good broad list with some very interesting people on it.
3: Uh, one of the interesting people is Akbar Khan. Tell me about him.
0: Oh, Akbar Khan. Well, Akbar Khan is um, an Afghan commander. He is... Um, the chap in command of the afghan forces during the retreat from kabul in 1842 is he's the, he's the son of Dost mohammed so he has got a claim to the afghan throne uh, and the if you're looking at big victorian disasters certainly the uh, the retreat from kabul in 1842 is right up there now but um, al Khan his, his great uh, ability is to be able to mobilise enormous numbers of the populace of, of Afghanistan. They, he's got a huge rally of people behind him. Uh, and when you think that really you're talking about irregular forces against uh, a, a, a crown army, uh, General Elphinstone's army, centred around the 44th foot, is actually a crown army, along with a lot of um, company troops as well. But they go down to a total disaster in the passes coming back down from Afghan, da, down through, uh, from Kabul, uh, that's another good point, isn't it? It's, uh, it's the ability of commanders to know the ground that they're fighting in. And one of the big disadvantages for British commanders is, in a lot of cases, they're fighting on someone else's home ground. Um, if it's not your rock, you're not going to defend it as well as the guy who lives there.
3: No, exactly. So, you know, being on home territory is surely gives everyone a big advantage.
0: I suppose so, and that's a guess. Um, fortunately for Britain, of course, we, d- we tend not to be fighting in Kent. Um, one of the, uh, the, the, the generals in last year's, or two actually, generals in last year's ev- uh, event were um, Fairfax and Cromwell. Well, we couldn't look at those kind of generals because obviously you can't be an enemy commander... If you're an Englishman fighting an Englishman, from the point of view of our competition, we're looking for people outside of that. Um, but th- there aren't many other examples of, of uh, battles on English soil, or British soil, I should say.
3: We sort of talked about the fact that it was quite hard, perhaps, to, uh, to, to fill the list with, with suitable candidates in comparison to last year's generals. So does that tell us something about um, the, uh, the, the strength and power of the British uh, army during this period?
0: Well, you see, it's it's not a popular thing, is it, to to say we were good at this kind of thing, because it it uh, might tend to suggest that we were we, we shouldn't have been we shouldn't have been so good at it that we were uh, that we might have been uh, uh, over, overreaching ourselves somewhat. But actually, Britain has had very capable generals and very successful armies. You can point to any number of occasions over the last 400 years where we've had our hat handed to us in no uncertain terms, and we are highlighting quite a few of those in this particular competition. But generally speaking, um, British arms have been quite successful over the course of the, over the, course of the last few hundred years.
3: That was Julian Farrance of the National Army Museum. You can look over their long list and cast your vote, should you wish to, on their website, which is www.nam.ac.uk. And as I said at the start of that interview, we have a feature in the March issue of BBC History magazine by Saul David all about the Redcoats and the British Army, so you might well be interested in that. That's all for this week's episode. Next week we'll be talking about the sinking of the Tirpitz in World War II and considering early modern nuns on the continent. By strange coincidence, both those topics are also being explored in the March issue of BBC History magazine, on sale right now in the UK, or as I mentioned earlier, available for download to Kindle. Go to historyextra.com forward slash Kindle for that. Thank you for listening. BBC History magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.